Hi everyone, this is Klaatu, and you're listening to the GNU World Order, episode 14, season 12. And today I want to talk about the Raspberry Pi. I had use for a, a, a powerful, a, a more or less powerful Pi, and so I had to take the Banana Pi, the, the fairly recent, you know, dual core, whatever it is, maybe it's quad core, I don't really remember, uh, Banana Pi from from where it was serving as my home server, and I had to replace it with something a little bit less powerful. And that something was a Raspberry Pi version 1 that I found in a box uh, that, that I really, I'd kind of, I'd had it for for a while, and that it, it had gotten used in a, a kind of an art-type project, and and that's kind of what I was saving it for, it was just, you know, for the next thing that, that I needed a, a low-powered board for. But taking it out of the box, I, I looked at it and I realized, I mean, the thing is now seven years old, which isn't super old, but, I mean, it's it's old. It, it is not very powerful. And I thought, well, this might be a good thing to just relegate as my home server, which has a very low low demand on it currently. There's not a whole lot I need from a home server now that I work from home. It's just... It doesn't do a whole lot, to be honest. It's not like my media server or anything like that. It's just an IRC box and a convenient SharePoint for 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 files across the network. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes I don't even use it for that because I can just SSH into a computer on my network and I don't even need to put it into a central location. So really not doing a whole lot these days. So I figured, well, this is a perfect job for a very, very low-powered uh, version of the Pi, and you can't get much lower than a version 1 of the Raspberry Pi. It is from 2011, it says, on the on the, on the the chip, it's uh, on the board itself, it, it's got a date, 2011, and uh, it is, it's one of the originals, so it's the very, it, it, I think it's, it's still, like, I think there was a Rev A and a Rev B or something, I get very confused with with hardware, to be honest, especially when they don't clearly identify themselves in print on the on the device, which I guess computers just don't like to do. But well, computers don't care, but vendors don't apparently like to do that. So I think this is this must be a Rev B because it's 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 not a little square Raspberry Pi. It's a it's a rectangular Raspberry Pi with uh, Ethernet and USB and HDMI and and analog and lots of pins. So I think it's a, a Rev B of version one. Anyway, point being, I, I knew that this was a very low-powered Pi, and and a you know in computer years, uh, an old Pi. It's an older model, so that usually means that you have to look around for a good thing to put onto it because there's there was no OS on it uh, sitting in the box and even if there was I, I would probably have to look at it very closely and see how up to date it was and how it how how up to date it could be brought uh, how it could be updated so I slapped a blank 8 gig SD card into the device and sat down to ponder what kind of OS I would put onto it. There are obviously lots of great choices, although I wasn't really clear, to be honest, what my choices, what my safe choices were. So I know that there are there are images provided by, for instance, raspberrypi.org, which 
presumably would be a pretty good choice because they're the ones making the boards. Uh, that said, this is an older board, and I don't, I haven't looked really into at all because of because of what I eventually ended up putting onto the pie, which you, you probably already know from the description of this podcast, but maybe you don't. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if if the images on RaspberryPi.org, like the current images, would work just as well, for instance, on a version one. I just, I don't know. I don't know how far back their support goes, and and with a quick, a quick skim of the page, I wasn't super sure. Um, similar issue, I guess, with Slackware Arm, Arm.Slackware.com. There, there's a matrix. There's a grid of all the different supported boards uh, and, and minimum CPU types off of which version has been released. And honestly, Raspberry Pi doesn't appear on any of those within that, that grid at all. There's there, there are lots of other things. There are like Banana Pi, Shiva Plug, Guru Plug, OpenRD, Trim Slice, lots of other other boards, but, but not the Raspberry Pi by name. Now, whether that matters or not, I just, I don't know. I didn't really look into it, again, for reasons. So, eventually, partially, partially, or, or maybe strongly, hang on, I'm just going to take a sip of my coffee. I know that's crazy, it's not even coffee break time. Um, but partially influenced by the episode, you know, two or three episodes ago now, about package source, it kind of hit me that maybe a really good candidate for this aging little measly pie might be NetBSD. Now, I had I've run um I've run FreeBSD on a pie before, and I don't like to talk about it because it sounds rather slanderous, but I I might as well I'm going to be open about this. So, the FreeBSD experience was that I it was actually, I think it was on this banana pie um, that I that I rescued from service. Uh, so I I put FreeBSD on some SD card and put it into some board. Again, I think it was this this banana pie, and uh, it 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 served me quite well for a day. And I you know I got it installed. I don't remember it being difficult to install. I, I I think it even did the resizing of the partition pretty easily. That was pretty simple. And and then I, I sat down and started setting it up as one does with FreeBSD. You know, you add your users, you you grab your ports tree, and you start installing software that you want to run and so on. So I got it all set up. Got all my old data copied over to it. You know, it was it was ready to go. So I put it in its in its in its final resting place. I mean, not not its grave, just like the place where it was going to be. And and um, you know, sat down for a cup of coffee or whatever. And next thing I know, the power's going off. It just shuts off the whole the house, just completely dark. Um, this was at my old flat, and that was something that happened. Every now and again, not not super common, but it was for whatever reason that flat, that area, that neighborhood tended to have like weird power issues sometimes, and that's what happened. So it shut everything down, and when the power came back on moments later, the Pi attempted to boot and would not. And upon further investigation, I discovered that the Pi, um, the the file system on the SD card had become completely corrupted, 
because of the power failure. And through this experience, I learned that the FreeBSD file system, UFS, is not journaled. Which, in 2017 or 2016 or whatever year that was, to have your, your primary file system, the, the file system that your operating system installs with not not be journaled to me that is insane and i'm sure that there's a perfectly good reason for it i'm sure that that for whatever you know some there is some reason that freebsd does it that way i i i have to assume uh but but by default it is not journaled uh, and that that seems and i say it seems crazy because is just one of those things that I would never have dreamt to even to even investigate, which is why I didn't. You know, I mean, you can turn journaling on. You can go in and do some stuff and make journaling happen. It's not. It wasn't simple. I did look it up, and it was. It was. It was a process. And by that time, I just I was so frustrated that I wasn't really wasn't really up for you know, converting UFS to a journaled version of UFS or whatever I needed to do. There are instructions online. You can look it up on how to how to enable journaling on UFS. But um, it, it happened because I didn't even think to look... You know, you just don't think about it. You don't think, oh, I'd better make sure that the file system is journaled. I mean, that's just a... It's one of those things that you just assume. And, and FreeBSD nowhere in the docs for installing this thing or or setting it up or anything nowhere in there was there a a step for now you should really turn on file journaling you know it was just it just wasn't mentioned until you searched for it so very very shocking and a little bit discouraging and that kind of that kind of made me think okay probably bsd on a pi especially under these conditions where power may go out uh, and I'm, I'm not going to set up like a battery backup system for my Pi, so um, so yeah, I just I, I I thought maybe not, maybe not. So recently, uh, having played around with package source on Slackware and finding it kind of interesting, uh, I, I I decided to to, to just kind of look into NetBSD for the Pi, thinking I was probably going to find find the same drawback as I had with FreeBSD. Because I, I I didn't feel like taking a bunch of extra steps to journal a file system when when it would be a lot faster to just download a random Linux distro and slap it on there and know that uh, you know that the the file system is ext three or four or some such journal file system as that. So I looked into NetBSD and discovered that it. Uh, it uses a file system called FFS, which is a, I believe it actually stands for, I, I looked it up on the Wikipedia the other day, uh, I think it actually stands for something like Faster File System or something like that, which um, which is an improvement on the UFS. It is, it's an improvement call, uh, by a guy named Marshall Kirk McCusick. Uh, who was a Berkeley graduate student at the time that he created FFS. Yeah, it's called Fast File System. Uh, he brought cylinder groups to it, 
thereby breaking the disk up into smaller chunks, with each group having its own inode and data blocks. So, or inodes, plural, and data blocks. So the intent of FFS is to try to localize associated data blocks and metadata in the same cylinder group, and ideally all of the contents of a directory, both data and metadata for all the files, in the same or nearby cylinder group, thus reducing fragmentation caused by scattering uh, across the disk. That did not really tell me anything about journaling. But anyway, um, with a little bit more research, I discovered that you can quite easily turn on journaling. Again, journaling is not enabled by default. I would love to know from a BSD guru what the rationale behind that is. I really would, because I'm, I'm sure there is a very good reason. I just, I'm, I have it in my head that, that maybe it's to maintain optimum flexibility, so that if you are running like a big data center, and there's some kind of thing where you can actually journal your disks on separate faster disks, then maybe that would be a thing. I don't know if that's a thing, but I imagine it has to be. So I'm thinking maybe that's why they don't turn it on internally. Like, no one's going to journal a file system on the same file system. You know, they're going to, or, you know, on the same disk, they're going to offload that to their SSD array uh, and and keep their journaling, their journals separate, you know, something like that. I don't know. I could be making all of that up, honestly, but but that's kind of that that's the that's the reason I invented in my head anyway. So um, that's 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 good. FFS does have journaling, and that's a good thing. So I decided that it was worth a go. So then I started looking into well, okay, how do I get how do I get NetBSD on a Pi? How how easy is this going to be? Turns out it's really pretty darn easy as long as you are up for learning about le learning a very little about the ARM architecture and what a what a horrendous maze it all is. And I say horrendous just from someone who has not really looked into ARM all that much. I mean, I've got a bunch of ARM devices, but I just haven't sat down and really studied w what makes it all go. So if you go to netbsd.org/ports this is assuming you have a Pi and want to install NetBSD on your Pi. And I can confirm up front that NetBSD on a version 1 Pi runs beautifully. It really, really does. It is a, it's a fast and uh, very, very efficient little system. So, so if you go to netbsd.org slash ports, you can see all the different platforms that NetBSD famously supports. And NetBSD, if you've not heard the story, it's the OS that literally someone got it to run on a toaster. I'm, I'm assuming it's a fairly high-tech toaster, uh, one that can hold an operating system. But but yeah, that's the that's the joke. And so it 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 runs. And their tagline right on their website, as you can see, is of course it runs NetBSD. So so of of all candidates, this is kind of the, I guess in a way, the obvious one. Um, the, the closest thing to this level of support I can think of would be Debian, which historically for me has always hit hit all the marks. But but NetBSD, yeah, I mean there are things on here that that you and I will never see in our lives. Things like Atari. 
M68K chip. Actually, I know a couple of people with M68K chips in something, not an Atari though. Uh, a B box, yeah. The the list is just it goes forever. But anyway, so the ones that I the, the one that I zeroed in on, you know, the CPU type is ARM. But to my to my great confusion, ARM is not just ARM. It's it's a lot of different things. So there's the EVB ARM. There is the HPC ARM. There's the Acorn 32 ARM. Uh, there's let's see, Epoch 32 ARM, Cat's ARM, um, Lyonix. That's L Y O N I X, not a mispronunciation of Linux ARM. So yeah, lots and lots of different. Arms now. A couple I knew probably were not it. So the one I kind of was zeroing in on just because it was kind of the closest was the EVB arm. But I don't know what that means. And the only the explanation of what an EVB arm that their site says is it's an arm evaluation board. Okay, uh, but that it kind of says that about a lot of a lot of boards. The, the MIPS-based evaluation board, PowerPC-based evaluation board. I don't evaluation board. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. So I just kind of started clicking around, really, and eventually discovered that yeah, if you click on the EVB ARM link, it takes you to netbsd.org/ports/evbarm, and then you discover that indeed. Uh, it so it supports some specific board. It gives specific board information, and the list is all winner Sunsi family socks. So uh, the all winner, I believe, is what the Raspberry Pi, the Banana Pi runs. So that's actually applicable to me, but not something that I need right now. Beaglebone, uh, Nvidia Tegra, and Odroid C1. I've heard of the Odroid as well. Heard of all of those actually. And then of course the Raspberry Pi 1, 2, and 3. Now at this stage I was not actually sure what version of the Pi that I had because I can't keep them straight and they don't say anything on the thing. And I, I kind of assumed it was either a 1 or a 2. I was leaning towards 1, but I'd seen a, a Model 1 version A, which was like really sort of almost not half size, but two-thirds size of a of what you really think of when you think of a Pi. And so that was confusing me. I wasn't sure if that was a... The, like, was that the one? And so all the other... The, the rectangular ones were two and up, or what? So, I, I mean, I knew it wasn't a three. Uh, so I wasn't really sure. And I was afraid that that would actually really, really matter. And uh, for all I know, it would have. I, I really... Again, I haven't done a whole lot of research into this, I'm afraid. So... Um, I kind of kept reading up on this stuff and eventually discovered that the Raspberry Pi version 1 runs the uh, the EV ARM 6HF, E-ARM V6HF. So I thought, okay, well, that's probably what I have because that's the lowest, apparently, that, that I, that, that's in a Pi. So that's probably, whether this is version 1 or 2, I'm just going to assume it's that one. So I, I kind of just went forward with that that belief. And it points you, the, this, this web page that lists all of the, all of the ARM ports, or, or the EVB ARM port, ports, uh, pointed me to NetBSD EVB ARM-ARM711 as the latest release. And I figured that was probably the direction I wanted to go. Now, uh, the 
it, it gets a little bit confusing again because they they have a lot of options um, and so if for instance if if I go to to the link that they sort of send you to by default from this from this arm page the release info takes you to like an FTP to FTP site or an FTP location URI and uh, I'm just viewing it in a web browser and it 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 is for the EVB arm dash arm EB, which I don't really know what that is either. Actually, didn't bother looking. So if you go into the parent directory of that, you you realize that there's a bunch of EVB arm categories. There's about it looks like seven of them. There's EVB arm arm, EVB arm arm B, EVB arm E arm, EVB arm E arm EB. EVB arm E arm V six H F. Hey, there it is. That's the one. And then seven F, and then the seven F E B, and that's all for that category. So I clicked into the six H F, and there you'll find uh, some install notes, and then two directories. One called binary, and one called installation. So naturally, I went into the installation directory. Surprise, that's not the right directory. So don't go into the installation directory. What you really want, I mean, you could if you want to do something different, but what you really want to do, probably, if you're if you're like me, you just want to install the thing. So that's what you really want to download is the binary image of, of the install. So that's kept in the GZ image folder, G-Z-I-M-G, and the the file name is rpi.img.gz so it 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 all makes sense but you just kind of have to think a little bit around <laughs> what you really want because it it there there are so many different options i mean there really are um it, and it's it's a little bit overwhelming uh especially if you're just not you know i i didn't want this to be uh, a full week project or even a weekend project really I wanted it to be kind of like a day project and happily it ended up being an evening project it was over a really really fast I'm, I'm padding this episode a lot just to kind of make it seem like this is a big deal this is super simple stuff so uh, eventually the rpi.img.gz image downloads to your computer it's about 290 megabytes so it's not tiny but then again, I mean, 8 gig card, 290 megabyte base image, it's not really that bad. So uh, it downloads, and then you can copy it over onto your SD card. So the way that I did that was the cool, the cool way. So I didn't unzip it first. I did a Zcat rpi.img.gz, and then piped that to DD. Byte size of one megabyte, so BS equals one M, capital M, and then out file equals, so OF equals slash dev slash SDX, or whatever your drive location is, space I flag equals full block, O flag equals direct, semicolon sync. I don't know if that sync is actually necessary, but I keep seeing it in a lot of Raspberry Pi commands, and so I kind of keep it in there. I've never had a problem with that sort of thing, but... I just kept it in there anyway. And that, that DDs it over to your SD card. And once that's finished, you take the SD card out of your computer. 
and pop it into the Raspberry Pi and start the Pi. Now this is the cool part. So when you start the Pi, NetBSD takes over immediately. There's no bootloader. There's it just it it snaps on. NetBSD is there, and on first boot, it does everything for you. It is super cool. It detects that it's the first boot. It detects that its file system therefore is not maximized for the SD card that it is on, and so it stops booting. And it well, I mean, I don't really know what it's when in the process it does but but it stops sort of your login process and it re it re sizes the uh, root file system to fit onto your card so if I do a df dash h here of uh, slash um, dev ld zero a is size seven gigs used two point three gigs available four point three gigs so it did that all on its own. I I just DD'd 290 megabytes over onto this thing. I had no part in any of the rest of the setup. It just did it. So that was really, really slick. It tries to um, detect a network. I wasn't plugged into a network at the time, so it couldn't find it, but that's okay. It continued, and then it uh, gave me a root prompt. You log in with as root. Uh, if I recall correctly, there was no password on root at all. Could be wrong. It might have been something really obvious like root or maybe T-O-O-R, root backwards. Um, but I think there was no password. So I just logged in uh, and added my user, and and that was it. I mean, that was the setup process. So really, the most complex part, if you're keeping count, was finding the right image to download. Like, after that, it went so fast and so smooth. I was really, really impressed. It was a... It was like the noobs image off of Raspberry pi.org if you've ever used that it's a super slick little image for people who are noobs um, although that's not what it noobs new out of box operating system or something like that um, but you plug the thing in if I recall correctly and, and you just plug in your pi and it kind of like brings up you know, like hey what what system do you want to install on this thing and do you want to resize the partition you know it's it's very it steps you through it very very slowly and carefully and really really nice and that's what this was. I mean, it was just you put it into the Pi and you boot up and it, I mean, you you start it up and and it goes. And I mean, in fact, the, too much to my amazement. I mean, I thought, okay, so now now I'm, I'm logged in as root. I better go in and and you know turn on SSH and enable SSH and all that other stuff. It was already on. It was already enabled. So really, I could have done this completely headless. I could have. I could have not had a monitor out at all. I could have popped the SD card into the into the pie and dropped it back behind the chair where it lives in the in the, in the lounge it w waited for it to to run its first you know its ssh key generation and all the you know the network detection and the user not the user creation but the uh, the resizing of the partition and, and then i could have sshed into it right away i mean i would have had to look at my router to find its dh to find the ip address all that other stuff, but my point is that it's completely headless, like you would with a server, you know, an actual like a server in the in the server room, where you can't be bothered to hook things up to monitors. You just you just SSH into them, and that's how this was. It was really, really, really slick, really nice. Like if I'm gonna do multiple OS installs, or or rather multiple 
Pi OS installs, I think this would be a real contender. I mean, I guess depending on what the Pi was going to end up doing, but, and I haven't tested, probably getting ahead of myself here, but I haven't tested NetBSD a whole lot in terms of, like, every possible use case. You know, I mean, I've, I've had this thing running for maybe two weeks by the time you hear this episode. So right now I can vouch for it as a home server that serves some files and runs screen all day, mostly for IRC. I mean, that's that's the extent of my testing right now. But the, the initial experience definitely was smooth and nice. Highly recommended. Okay, so after that, the first thing on my mind was enabling the file system journal. And that, as it turns out, is apparently, and again, I haven't done a whole lot of, I haven't gone and yanked the power out from it to test this yet. I guess I'm going to have to do that someday. But um, apparently, all you have to do to enable journaling on an FFS file system is go into slash Etsy slash, nope, uh, slash, yeah, Etsy slash, FS tab, there we go, and the first, well, not the first line, the first active line uh, is my root partition, so slash dev slash LD0A, and that is the slash, the root partition, and file type, or file system type, rather, is FFS, and the mode that it mounts with is RW, and all you have to do is append to RW, comma, L O G and then save. So you, you put the log option into its mount options and reboot. And now the file system apparently is being uh, journaled. Now again, I have not really tested this a whole lot, so I don't know if I'm being misinformed, or maybe they're telling me that this is like a journal. You know, I, I don't know. I do know that there is another option for uh, journaling the FFS file system called uh, WAPBL or something like that, and it's kind of a it's a kernel module or it's a kernel yeah it's a kernel module I guess uh, that 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 deals with journaling the FFS file system. Now, I don't know if inserting the log option into my FS tab is invoking this kernel module, or if if that's something different that I can do in addition to or as an alternative. I haven't I have not been able to extract that information from the the various sort of very random articles about this topic that I have seen. So, there's probably more to learn about that, and there's definitely testing to be done. Um, hopefully this is really journaling it, and if I yank power out of it unexpectedly, it will it will not mind. It will not corrupt itself. I, I guess I'll have to try that very, very soon. In fact, you know what? Let me, let me go try that right now. I'm just going to try that. on Not on air, but practically. <laughs>
Wow, that was exciting. That was truly, truly exciting. Now, I already had coffee, so I just, I didn't have to get a coffee, but I, I still have coffee. So what happened was I went back into the lounge and I unplugged my Raspberry Pi version 1 running NetBSD. I just, I didn't actually unplug it. I, I there, in New Zealand, the the electrical sockets have switches on them. On each, every electrical socket has a switch by it, so you can turn off a device just by hitting the little switch on the electrical socket. So I, I hit the switch for that whole side of the room, and it turned everything off, including the Raspberry Pi. And I waited a little while, and then I turned it back on and walked away, came back, sat down here at my desk to continue the podcast, and tried to, as confirmation that it had worked, because I was just so sure it had worked, I did an SSH to that IP address, and nothing said it, the connection, port 22 connection was was refused. So that's not a good sign. But at the same time, if, if the connection is being refused, that means something is at that IP address. So I pinged that IP address, and and I was getting a response. So that's interesting. So I, I grabbed the Pi and brought it in here to where my monitors are set up and, and turned it on and plugged it in. And so it turns out that when it's booting up, it says uh, here, uh, Tuesday, March 28th, 20th uh, at 0158 UTC time, starting root file system check, dev r, I don't know what the r, yeah, dev rld0a file system is journaled, not checking, not resizing root, logging unsupported, replaying log to disk, swap control, adding dev ldb0b as swap, starting file system checks, and 18 files, 42,852 free. So it's kind of going through the through the recovery um, mode here. And as as you as you heard me read, it, it did it did confirm that it was journaled. So this is a journaled file system. All I had to do was add one little option to its mounting um, to the mount options in Etsy FS tab. And the reason it wouldn't respond to my SSH was that after it had it had been interrupted that way it had to do or it it felt the need to do a font config cache update now i don't know if it does that every time it boots up or if that was purely i guess i could test that too but um or if that was purely a thing that it was doing because it had been rudely interrupted um i'm not sure so the, that was why, though, it was taking, you know, a lot longer than than normal to, to, to boot up. Overall, I'm fine with this. This is, this is actually exactly what th this, uh, you know, this is the, the result that I would want from, from having had that happen. So I'm, I'm rebooting now just to see if it, it does that font caching thing every boot or if that was just because I I unplugged it but so that that's how easy it is to do the journal the the journaling on on FFS um I don't even know how to describe how much easier that was than what I read uh that you had to do for UFS so I I'm 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 kind of I'm really kind of liking NetBSD right now. Um, I, I've I've had some experience with it before on, uh, I mean, I, I use it on a semi-daily basis, technically speaking, 
because it is yeah okay so I just rebooted I just rebooted the thing and yeah it looks like the the font cache was purely a function of recovery it it it, it just rebooted and did not did not have to go through the font cache update so that was indeed just something that it was doing because it had been shut down incorrectly so I'm going to now actually issue the power off command because I think that one one such test <laughs> in 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 a day uh, is fine. I don't need to do any more testing on that. I was truly nervous when I tried to log in and it did not did not respond to SSH. I I was I I was starting to really really suspect the worst and I was I really didn't want that to be true. I really did not want it to be to have gotten screwed up. Not because I mean I like I told you in, reinstalling is simple. It's super simple. It wouldn't have actually set me back all that much time. I would have just done the dd command again and I would have been more or less where I was before the test. I just didn't want that to be the I didn't want that to happen. And it didn't. It was journaled. That was fantastic. So, anyway, you've heard it live and uh you've heard it you've heard it as it as it happened, uh, it is it is a journaled file system because I added the log option. Now, as I was saying before, I got sidetracked. Uh, yeah, so NetBSD is the thing that SDF, the free shell place, runs, and so I, I technically use NetBSD quite regularly. Uh, I just had, I've never run it on anything of my own, and in fact. Many years ago, I had tried to get Net NetBSD running on a PowerPC machine. Uh, actually, a couple of different PowerPC Power machines. Be because, I mean, like again, its reputation is that it'll run on anything. And I'd, I'd had a lot of... Um, a lot of people were kind of recommending NetBSD. It was kind of like, for some reason, people were saying, oh, it's really nice. Never really understood what made it different than FreeBSD. And honestly, this journaling thing is, is enough to, to put me in the NetBSD camp myself. But, um, I, I yeah, I, I couldn't get the PowerPC one to work because of some bootloading things. And I, I don't know if that's really NetBSD's problem. I mean, it's not really NetBSD's problem. It's not really PowerPC's problem. I mean, PowerPC has this open firmware thing that isn't all that open, and I just never could figure out how to get to the right partition uh, to to get into NetBSD. And apparently, NetBSD didn't have a a bootloader sort of figured out for that. I don't know why they didn't just use Yaboot or something like that. Not really sure what the problem was. I guess kind of it is NetBSD's problem. But anyway, doesn't matter. It, it works beautifully on the Pi. Uh, I am now heartily recommending it. But let's get into a little bit, just really briefly, about package source. So package source, interestingly, uh, well, as I said, is the it's kind of the reason I decided that that I thought to try NetBSD. I don't think I would have ever thought of NetBSD hadn't I just played around with Package Source two weeks ago, or whatever it's been, four weeks ago now, by the time you're hearing this. Um, and I thought, okay, so NetBSD is on the Pi now, so I've got Package Source, right? Well, yes and no. So, first of all, my problem was that I was thinking of Package Source as the, 
as the command, and it is not. I don't know why I thought it was the command. I, I don't recall... I don't know why I would have gotten that into my head. But th that's kind of... When I when I was approaching it, I, I was thinking, okay, package source is the command that I will use to to install packages. And I... I, I know that's not correct. I, I really, honestly, sincerely do not know why I, I why I thought that, but that's what I kind of thought for a while. So, so that was one mistake of mine. And then the other mistake is is on NetBSD, or I, I should say, package sources problem. I feel their documentation's a little bit, a little bit, a little bit confusing, at least to me. And maybe I'm just second guessing a bunch of stuff where I shouldn't be second guessing things. But for me, I I was quite confused by this, and this this happened over a couple of different iterations. So just a lot of it is not is not NetBSD's fault, is not Package Source's fault. It's my fault. But some other things, just I feel like they could have been made clearer in the docs, and that's some constructive feedback in case in case by some weird random chance someone from NetBSD slash package source actually are are listening to this or, or ever do listen to this. Um, which frankly I'd be honored. And if you are listening, you have an amazing little BSD distribution, so thank you. So the 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 I don't know exactly the relationship between package source and NetBSD. As far as I know, package source is a NetBSD project. The, the fact that it has its own website, I'm assuming, is because there's so much more that. I mean, package source is so. I mean, obviously, I'm, I I ran it on Slackware, so I mean, it it can be run on. And I, I actually just heard from someone else who was running it on, on a non-Linux platform, a POSIX compliant, a Unix certified non-Linux commercial closed source proprietary platform, which I'm not going to mention by name. Um, so that's impressive. That's cool. And that's probably why they have their own site, because when when you've got a, an audience as wide as Package Source apparently can 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 have, then you might as well, yeah, have your own your own launching or your own your own sort of congregational point. So I went to packagesource.org because that's where I'd gone for for, for getting it for Slackware. Um, and well, so first, actually, I should I should start at the very beginning. First, I figured uh, I, I'm I got NetVSD, so I've got package source. So I typed in package source, nothing. Um, well, that's not a surprise because package source isn't a command, so that was silly. But I did luckily remember that that package source, the the ports themselves, were stored in slash usr slash package source, which is pretty common on on BSD slash usr slash ports on FreeBSD. Uh, slash usr slash slack builds on slackware as i have come to as i've come to do it but um yeah it's it's pretty common to be there so i went into slash usr and there was no package source directory okay well so that explains that so then i kind of thought well i guess i need to install package source so i went to packagesource.org and downloaded the the distribution of you know the, the ports tree essentially is is what it is i mean it's 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 package source, but that's it contains all the different software build scripts. So I, I downloaded that, but but in so doing, I, I guess again maybe I'm just second guessing things too much. Maybe I'm looking too too deep into this, but I, I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to get exactly because the way that they do it is that they have they have the latest stable, which is identified by the year and quarter. 
So 2017Q4, as of this recording, is the latest stable release, which sounds fine, but the thing that I had downloaded initially, not not finally, not not what I'm running now, but what I had initially downloaded was the 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 current branch of NetBSD, like whatever you know, whatever their their testing branch is. I don't remember why I did that. I just I think I just stumbled my way into it, and I I saw NetBSD eight must be better than seven point one, so I'll just do that. Uh, downloaded that, had that on the Pi, perfectly happy with it. But then when I went to Package Source, I couldn't find sort of the I couldn't find the tree that matched up with packet with the NetBSD that I felt like I was running. So I went back to NetBSD.org, downloaded 7.1, which you know which was on the ports the EVB ARM ports page, and so that felt a little bit better. But then again, when I went to PackageSource.org and was poking around for for whatever matched up with 7.1, there wasn't anything. So then I I probably just over making it over complex. I went back to NetBSD and kind of looked. Okay, well, what was the release date of 7.1? And and I was hoping that it would be in, within the quarter, the fourth quarter of 2017. But then I got confused because I don't know what quarter they're talking about. Like, are they doing it monthly, like an actual quarter of a year, or is it like like the the business quarter of a year, which which are actually offset for some weird reason. So I don't know. I was I was making it really more complicated, I think, than probably it needed to be. And it just felt weird, I guess, to download something marked 29 December 2017 when when it's 2018 uh in March, you know, and I thought, well, I don't I don't know if that's the right one. That's what I eventually did and it all turned out just fine. But I felt like I was like like there was a an undue amount of confusion over that. Looking back at it, I realized that, I guess, to to other platforms, package source 7.1.1 or .2 or whatever or 8, you know, it wouldn't make any sense to them. Like if you're running Illumos, package source 7.1.1 means means nothing to you. So maybe 2017 Q4 means more to you. Now I think it's probably I mean so in other words matching the net NetBSD release date maybe doesn't doesn't serve any real purpose. Now I would probably argue personally that it does because then NetBSD would match package source which to me makes sense. And and it's it's numerical so people will still know on other platforms they'll still know that 8 and uh 8 is greater than 7.1, so they would still know that, yes, okay, I'm on the latest because I'm at a higher number than I was two days ago. But anyway, it, it was a little bit confusing to me, and it didn't stop there, unfortunately. So once I had the correct thing downloaded, or, or you know, I kind of assumed that I had the correct thing downloaded, and at this point I did, um, I... I I went back to try to figure out, okay, well, what do I need to ins to do to get this thing installed? And all the documentation on PackageSource.org is written as if, though, you're not on NetBSD. Like, there's practically, I mean, at least the install docs. Like, if you go to the Quick Start Guide, 
and read, it keeps giving you these these sort of these caveats about how if you're not on on NetBSD, then you need to do this or or you need to do that. And I I couldn't ever find the thing that said like if you're on NetBSD. That was the, you know there was this part that it just seemed like they already assumed everything was installed as long as you are on NetBSD. But as far as I knew, it wasn't installed. Okay, so what was happening was that in my head, I was trying to make package source the thing that I had downloaded into into package source. Really, the thing that I had installed that I had downloaded was the ports tree, and that package source the infrastructure was indeed already installed. And you can kind of more or less check on that yourself by looking in usr slash sbin slash pkg underscore and then tab a bunch of times if you've installed the bash and bash completion um, packages from from package source. Um, maybe that was why I couldn't figure it out because I didn't have bash. I was dealing with like sh or something. But anyway, yeah, so if you do that, then you see, oh, I do have package underscore add, package underscore admin, package underscore create, package underscore delete, package underscore info. Those are all package source commands, and those are, th those those deal with the package side of package source. So you can, just, I think I kind of sort of hinted at this in the episode that I did about package source. I probably didn't make it very, very clear, because I wasn't really interested in one side of it, but for this version one pi, which compiles rather slowly, uh, the the binary side of package source is actually a really really big sell for me. So, um, package source has a package and it's got source, hence its name, package source. And the package will it's like um, R, it's like an RPM or 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 um, apt or something like that, where you're installing actual binary. Um, compiled binaries, you're, you're just pulling them down off of the internet and installing them onto your local machine. So it's it's like a traditional, you know, like what most people think of when they install Linux software. That's what they they're really thinking of is installing a package. So that those are the package commands: package add, package uh, create, package delete, package info, package uh, whatever else I, I skipped over. Admin. Um, th those. So if I do like a package underscore add and then typed in um, I don't know irssi, it would ideally tell me that I already had that installed. It's thinking about it. Well, we'll see what it does. Yeah, it says already recorded as installed. Very nice, very nice. Um, so yeah, so it would have pulled package or it would have pulled irssi from the FTP site. Well. It actually wouldn't have. It wouldn't have known where to get it. But anyway, we'll get into that in a moment. Um, and then it would have installed it on my system and and taken note of that installation in its little database. Now, the source side of package source is the thing where you go and do stuff manually, just like on FreeBSD or or in Slack builds. So you could go to cd slash usr slash package source, which is your ports tree, and then go into some category. So here's uh, games go into games and then we could go into dungeon because that's a zork clone and then we could do something like make install and then hit return and that would compile and install the game dungeon 
So those are the two sides of package source. There's the package commands that you use to actually, you know, do the fetching and installing of a pre-compiled package. And then there's the thing that doesn't have a command. It's just the stuff that you do. It's you CD into the ports directory, you find the category of this thing that you want, you go into the application, you issue a make install command, and it just it builds your software and installs it for you. So I was getting confused because I kind of wanted the thing that I installed from package source on NetBSD to be to be all the commands and everything like that. But I already had the commands in on the system. That actually did that did come with the system. Um, I don't necessarily really need to grab the ports tree, but I did because I like being able to CD into a ports tree and look around and and build packages and stuff like that. So I I I have that on the local system. I like having it there, and I will not be removing it anytime soon. That said, um, there is a little bit of setup that you have to do in order to uh, make everything um, fluid. So first of all, you have to set for either your root user or your local user, uh, or your um, your normal user. And if you do your root user, then in order to use package source, you, you have to be root, and if you just enable it for your normal user, then, then things will be installed into their user environment. So that's actually really nice too, it's very flexible that way. But I just did this for root because it's my own little server, and I, I, it's not like I need other people to be able to install their own packages. So uh, as root, I I created a uh, d um, a dot bash rc because that's what I'm using on this thing is bash, and uh, you set a environment variable uh, package underscore path, all capitals pkg underscore path, and you set that to the essentially the the repo, so the the FTP server in this case, so it's ftp.netbsd.org slash pub slash pkg src slash packages slash netbsd slash erm-v6hf, there's that magical designator, slash 7.1 slash all slash. And that tells package source when you, when you use a command like pkg underscore add, where to add it from. So, I mean, if you have a local stash of packages, you could do that, but, but typically you probably don't, and so you're using the big repo in the sky like we're all used to, and that's where you set that. And so that's a little bit weird to me because I'm used to setting that in some configuration file in Etsy, you know, whether it's a Etsy yum.repos.d or a slash Etsy slack package slash mirror file. That's where I would normally put that. So that that was a little bit interesting to me. But Having it local like that is handy because then if you do have separate users and you want certain users to install packages from one path and other users to be able to install packages from a different path, then that could be set there. I mean, I don't know what you would have to do to to open up permissions and stuff, but I mean, point being, there's, a, there's flexibility when configuration files are local. Uh, and then you want to define your path to include things that package source installs. Um, and this this is interesting to me, and it's always been interesting to me ever since I encountered it on SDF, is that, that package source puts stuff in slash USR slash PKG slash bin or SBIN or, or whatever. 
and I'm not 100% sure why that is. I, I kind of feel, personally, that that's what user local is for. But I guess they want to really differentiate between, you know, specifically what PKG SRC has installed. And so those go to slash USR slash PKG slash uh, SBIN or BIN or whatever the, the suitable uh, exact path is. So path equals user package SBIN colon user package bin colon and then dollar sign path so that that adds the 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 package source executable path to to your your environment and then of course export path and export pkg underscore path and you have to log out because you just added a bunch of stuff and then you log back in as root and then if you do commands that that are either from USR slash package slash SBIN, such as, for instance, PKG underscore add. Uh, then, no, that's actually, actually that's user SBIN. So, yeah, I don't know what... what it, I think, uh, well, I mean, obviously, IRSSI would be in in that path. Yeah, user package bin IRSSI. There you go. And probably Emacs would be there, too, now that I'm thinking about it. All the stuff that I've installed is in user package bin. So it's kind of, it's kind of handy, really. Everything's kind of almost um not cherooted but you know kind of kind of consolidated i guess is the is the right word for it and that's it so if so in other words setting up package source on netbsd is is indeed easier as long as you don't let your brain think too much about it, it it's a lot easier on netbsd than than one might think um you you have the ability to install binaries pretty much out of the box because package underscore add is already on your system, on your NetBSD system. You may have to configure a environment variable so that your PKG underscore add knows where to go. Although you don't have to, it's a little bit like DNF in a sense, where you can do a package underscore add, and then just you know you just go to go to a go to your go to the NetBSD repository. So if I if I open this thing up in a web browser netbsd.org slash pub slash pkg source slash packages slash netbsd slash erm6hf slash 7.1 slash all. That's where all of the packages live. Just indiscriminately just dumped there as tgz files, just like Slack packages. And, I mean, not just like Slack packages, but quite similar to Slack packages, actually, if you look at the contents. And, and you know, you can find something that you want to install. I can't really think of anything right now. Um, there's not a whole lot that I need right now, but, I mean, I've already installed a bunch of stuff. Um, but you can find something. Let's just randomly find, uh, here's one, Nagios 4.0.8.tgz. So I'll copy that path and then paste that path in after pkg underscore add paste and hit return. I'm not going to actually hit return. And it will it will pull that specific package from that specific location and go. So in other words, you don't have to set your package path as an environment variable. You can just tell it where the package lives on any reachable location and it will install it as if though it was a local installer sitting on your drive. So it's pretty flexible in that sense at least. Searching for packages isn't really, you know, how you can do like a yum search foo or um, apt search bar, whatever. You can't really do that on with package source. Uh, you can you can look at the 
at the collection of, of packages on you know on the internet wherever you're pooling your packages from or if, if not the you know from the network it might be on the internet it might just be a, a an NAS drive somewhere in your organization but there's not really a search command well actually I saw on Dragonfly VSD's site that there is a package underscore search that that someone has I don't know where to find it and I haven't really looked for it but I guess it it does exist and I'm sure it's fairly easy to impl well I know it's fairly Im easy to implement I've implemented it before so in fact I could probably port sport to package source um, that's kind of an interesting idea but anyway um, so if you do just like a find see how useful see how this season is just kind of building on itself uh, find slash user slash package source uh, slash USR slash package source and then type well not really type let's just do iname uh, and then quote asterisk and I guess we'll search for Jove let's see if it has Jove and you know so you're just searching in user pa you know the, all the packages that are in your local if you if you got your local copy of your ports tree then you can find a package within that ports tree and yeah it's not finding jove i don't know if if jove is really popular enough to to be here uh, i guess i could do a type directory to kind of limit what i'm searching because the top level of the package would just be a directory so if it contains the string jove it should return it's not returning anything so it might not have jove in the packages now i mean you could also just do a you know you could go to the the ftp site in a web browser and do a find you know, control f and then type in a string and oh jove does exist it's right there so eventually that should be found on my system but it is taking a while and I'm also I'm also indexing a bunch of stuff right now which maybe I'll stop it from doing that okay so anyway yeah you can do searches it's just not a built-in command by default anyway and like I say maybe maybe it is in a way and I just haven't found it yet but but certainly what they give you by default on NetBSD does not include a find command or a search through my port collection command Okay, so that's searching or not searching. Now you can also get information about packages that are installed. So pkg underscore info is kind of your your gateway to that. So if you do that, just pkg underscore info, that lists it just dumps to standard out a single a one item per line list of all the packages that you have installed with package source, followed by a brief description of of what that package believes itself to be. So for instance, there's lame dash three dot nine nine fast high quality MP3 encoder xvid core dash one. Why? Why did I must have gotten in my head that I needed ffmpeg on here? Yeah, I did. There it is. ffmpeg two dash two dot eight dot three decoding encoding and streaming software. So there you go. That's the that's the output of package underscore info. And then there's a bunch of switches for that. So you can do things like dash e uh, emacs Oh, that did not return anything. That's odd. That should have returned something. Um, so dash e is supposed to be uh, the, the the package name. Like if you want to specifically see if something is installed, you can do package package underscore info dash e. So it's basically a query of everything that you've got installed. Let's do Cairo. 
and that returns Cairo-1.14.6. So yes, that is installed. Really not sure why Emacs is not returning anything, because that happens to be installed. That is very interesting. Okay, but you could also do like a package underscore info pipe grep dash i, for instance, Emac, and then i. Uh, you know what it is? It's probably that the stupid thing is Emacs24. Yep, that was it. So Emacs24 dash no x11 dash 24.5 is indeed installed, which is good. So you can also do some really interesting tricks with package underscore info. These are This is really nice. There's a dash capital B as in beta, and it will show you the compile options. So let's, well, let's just stick with Emacs24, I guess. So dash capital B Emacs24. Oh, that actually gets me nothing as well. Okay, so it's actually the full name of that package. Wow, this is a lot of this is a very confusing package. Uh, Emacs 24 dash no x11. There it is. Okay, that's that's that. So now we're going to do a package underscore info dash capital B Emacs 24 dash no x11, uh, and that dumps to your terminal a all the all the build conf the whole the entire build configuration. So actually, probably even a better better example of that would be dash capital B FF MPEG uh, 2. Yeah, that shows you all of the different requires, provides, package configuration directory. You know, it just gives you all of the options that got used when building that package. It is really, really nice. Now, to be fair, on Slackware, I just look at the build script. You know, you just look at your the, the, the thing that, that you built the package with to find out what 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 options were set. And then for, for further information, you might do something like LDD, you know, just to find out what exactly it... it, it I guess, I guess in, a, in, a, in a sense, that would be what it requires. But this is really nice, because it, it gives you, like, it just... It, deconstructs it for you completely it's it's it tells you the different libraries that it, it that it's looking at where those things are stored the os version it was compiled for the object format just all kinds of stuff it's really really nice the dash capital b option is quite quite impressive and there are lots of other options for package info it's a pretty useful command it's a it's a fun one to um to play around with. Like you can even see, for instance, you could see package underscore info dash capital R to see what, what requires FFmpeg. So it's it's kind of the inverse. Uh, apparently nothing requires FFmpeg too. Um, but I certainly something would require Cairo, so let's do that. Yeah. So Cairo is required by Cairo dash gobject pango and GDK2 plus. So there you go. Now we know what what the dependencies, you know, what 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 depends on Cairo. We can we can get that information. So yeah, it's a lot of information about stuff, and it's all databasey and kind of gross, and you know, I don't really like it. But it it is fun to play around with. So not 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 necessarily something that's going to tear me away from from Slack builds, but but it is it's a nice system. It's got a lot of nice commands to it got a lot of nice little features and it's fun to play around with and to sum up it's a good little system for a raspberry pi like i say this is a raspberry pi version 1 
So it is not the fastest computer that you'll ever experience, but running that BSD on it is not a horrible experience at all. In fact, it's it's very it's quite responsive. It's fairly minimal, at least as installed, and it seems to be working quite well for the weeks that I've been running it, and it survived a power outage. So, yeah, I'm not really seeing a downside to this. The only possible thing I could maybe imagine, sorta, is maybe it wouldn't... maybe it wouldn't have access to, to specialized features of the Raspberry Pi. You know, I, I haven't, for instance... well, I have. I plugged it into the HDMI port, and it, it showed on the screen. I haven't run an X server on it. I haven't... I mean, it would do that, but I don't know how well it would do that. I haven't uh, hooked it up to a string of LEDs and tried to control them, uh, a, you know, an LED array, and tried to, like, add some kind of uh, Python library so that I can control the LEDs. I mean, I'm sure that would do that. I'm just trying to come up with, with things I haven't done which i mean that that's actually a pretty limitless uh list that i would have to invent but but you get you know what i mean like i i've i'm i'm not i haven't really done a whole lot with the pi with netbsd on it but in terms of just kind of your normal geek home server pi solution it's it's a pretty nice one it it it's been working well enough it's snappy and it's fun to play around with, so you should try it if you're looking for something to do on a on a weekend. Uh, this is, and and I say on a weekend because you'll only need half of your attention on Saturday morning to get the thing installed. And I, you already heard how that's done. I mean, it's it's downloading a file and copying it to the SD card, and that's it. And then you're up and running. And you'll be able to play around with it for for yeah all the rest of the day easy because there is just not a project it is it is super simple so try it out it is a lot of fun and it runs on at least a version one possibly even less so there you go so that's been NetBSD for you uh, a rave review in short it, it's very very impressive I couldn't be happier so um, I, I think no more. No more non-net BSDs for me when it comes to BSDs. It's a, it's a really nice iteration. I do believe that's all I have to say for this episode, so thank you for listening. I will talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. 
And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. behind us.